I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This chapter is kind of a classic chapter for uh, the resurrection, dealing with the resurrection of Christ, but also the resurrection of Christ's people as well. And uh, my hope today is to just uh, that, that we would be encouraged by these, uh, these words that we find here. And, and ultimately, I do want to look at the very end of the chapter where there's admonitions that Paul gives to his Christian readers in light of everything that he says in chapter 15. Um, but if we're going to do that, and I think uh, hear that admonition for what it is, we need to have some sense of the rest of the chapter before we get to that. So we want to get to verse 58, but the first 57 verses are, are somewhat important context. So um, time doesn't permit to uh, go line by line uh, through this, but um, we're going to pull out, I'm going to pull out five resurrection truths from, there, there are more than five in the text, I understand that, but we're going to look at five. Uh, and in from verses 1 to 57, and then we'll close and conclude with uh, looking at Paul's exhortation from verse 58. But we're going to start, before we do that, with, uh, with reading the chapter. So uh, we're going to begin in verse 1, and we'll read right through to verse 58. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 15, verse 1. <clears throat> it's the word of the Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, 
when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who, is put, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, 
immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So we're going to look at five resurrection truths from the first 57 verses, and then we will conclude by looking at verse 58 and Paul's exhortation and encouragement to us there. So the first resurrection truth I'd like to point out, at the risk of stating something obvious, is that Christ's resurrection happened. Christ's resurrection happened. Uh, there's a, uh, there have been many throughout church history, and, and, and it's even today, many still suggest this, that Christ's resurrection was, maybe we should think of it as a spiritual resurrection. There's a bit of embarrassment about the idea of a physical bodily resurrection because, well, obviously that sort of thing doesn't happen. So they'll argue things like, well, we should think of the resurrection of Christ as a spiritual one. His, his, the spirit of Christ lives on. Maybe his instructions about loving your neighbor and so on. Uh, his, his lack of violent resistance and so on. This, the spirit of Christ lives. But of course, that's not what the Bible teaches about the resurrection of Christ. And that's not what Paul talks about and teaches here in this chapter. Rather, he is very clear that Christ has been raised bodily and even seen by many other people. He makes this claim that Christ is indeed risen as one who was an eyewitness to this reality. He's an eyewitness, and he talks about how it was absolutely essential and necessary as a fulfillment of the Old Testament, that this has to have happened. And we'll get to more of that in just a moment. It's an essential part of the gospel message that we proclaim and that we believe. So he says in verse 4, as he's reminding us of what the gospel is, that Jesus not only died and was buried, but in verse 4, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That scripture was testifying to this. This was a necessary thing according to Scripture. In Luke chapter 24, Paul, or sorry, Jesus is talking with the, those men on the road to uh, Emmaus, if you recall that, and they, are, um, they, they were confused about all that went on, and Jesus says that they are of little faith and slow because did not the law and the prophets demand this? They, they, they point to the necessity. It must have happened that Christ died and entered into his glory afterwards upon his resurrection. So this is uh, important. It's important the Old Testament points to it. It had to have happened, and indeed, it really did happen. So he, he says that Christ has risen in accordance with the Scriptures, and then he goes on to mention all of these different people that Christ appeared to, they, these individuals who saw the risen Lord. He lists Peter first, that is Cephas, the rest of the twelve, then 500 disciples at one time, most of whom, he says, were still alive at the time Paul is writing this. James, all the apostles, and lastly, to Paul himself, as to one untimely born Paul. As if, of all people, he did not deserve this, but Jesus did appear to him. Paul is writing this because there were some in Corinth who were questioning the whole concept of the resurrection, just in general. We see that in verse 11. Some were claiming there is no resurrection of the dead. That is, they were believing that, that people just die and then they stay dead. There's, there's no uh, rising in the end. Um, you just die and that's it. It's over. Uh, but Paul understands that this would upend, upend the whole uh, of, of the Christian message, with the resurrection being at the heart of the Christian message. The resurrection of Christ, first and foremost, but also 
the resurrection of those who believe in Christ. And so he gives a defense, this extended defense of the resurrection by focusing first on Christ's resurrection and then later on his people's resurrection. And so as he's talking of Christ's resurrection, he again lists out all of these eyewitnesses. These are individuals, most of whom he says are still alive. Most of that group of 500, these other apostles, most of them were still alive. We know James certainly was killed very early on. But his point in making that statement, most of whom are still alive, is that there are many eyewitnesses to Christ's resurrection who, if we could call them to the stand right now, would give testimony to what I'm telling you. I have seen this, but it is not just me. There's all kinds of other people who saw the risen Lord Jesus as well. Now, if you think of Paul, he declares even here, he reminds us in verse 9 that he was a persecutor of the church. Uh, This was not a man who was looking to be misled by some wild claim of a, a risen Savior. He hated Jesus and he hated Christ's followers. He was there giving approval to the death of Stephen. He was breathing out murderous threats and violence against the church, Acts tells us. We know that when he was on his way to Damascus, he was wanting to imprison the Lord's people. This this was Paul's mindset. He was zealous in his opposition to Christ. But of course, something happened that caused this complete 180 in this man. And Paul testifies in a number of places in Scripture that, of course, what happened to him was that the risen Lord Jesus appeared to him on that road to Damascus. The idea of a resurrection is not something that is only seems a little bit odd to modern day people today. Uh, it is not as if the people in the first century didn't understand that when you die, you stay dead. It's not that they just were, were completely superstitious and just would, would buy absolutely any old thing. Right? We, we live in, a, in an age when evolution is our you know, how most people think of of the development of man. And we've gone from being very dumb and we believe anything, caveman stuff, barely speak a language. And now we are so very advanced. We are progressive. We see things better than those, not only 2,000 years ago, but I mean, a couple years ago. Uh, We're we're so much more advanced now than, than even just a couple of years ago. And This is the way most people think. And so, well, of course, people in the first century would buy a resurrection because they were, I mean, those 2,000 years ago, they were completely backwards. But that's not how it was. It was considered crazy back then because this was not a normal thing. It's never been a normal thing for someone to rise from the dead. And in fact, that is the very point. It's not something that as Christians we ought to be embarrassed about. Gee, yeah. That doesn't really happen very, you know, at, at all. No, it doesn't happen. And that is what is remarkable about the fact that Jesus is indeed risen from the dead. You remember and you recall that in the scriptures, the apostles were mocked for preaching the risen Lord Jesus. When Paul went to Athens and you have the wise men of the day gathering in Athens and hearing of new ideas. And, and Paul is so burdened by the idolatry of the city and he begins to preach what is it that, that brings about their mocking? It says in the end of Acts 17, it's when they heard him talk of the resurrection. That's when they're 
some of these men have had enough and they just start mocking Paul. Now we're told others were intrigued and wanted to hear more. We know that some believed, but that is the way it goes. That is the way it has always gone. The gospel is preached, and to some it is the, the aroma of life to life, and others it's the stench of death. Right? It is folly to the Gentiles, as Paul says elsewhere, but it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. This is not a new phenomenon that some would look at this and say, well, that, you know, people don't normally rise from the dead, therefore I, you know, they, 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 have, they think that the, the risen Lord Jesus Christ is, is, is a joke or is silly to them. It was like that in Paul's day. I'm not going to go into a long apologetic defense of the resurrection this afternoon. But generally speaking, there are some agreed upon facts that even scoffers have to acknowledge. Even unbelieving scholars need to admit. The first is that Jesus was indeed dead and buried. There have been various theories that, well, maybe he didn't quite die. and It's just not an adequate explanation of, of what we read in, in the gospel accounts, in these eyewitnesses' accounts, in some cases, like John. In these other accounts, like Mark, who are uh, getting their information from the apostles. The Romans knew how to crucify a person. They were very good at this. Jesus was indeed dead. His friends, everybody around, again, these were not stupid people. They, they understand a dead person. He was laid in a tomb. He was truly buried. Another truth that is acknowledged, that needs to be acknowledged, is that that tomb was later found to be empty. And and with that, a body was never produced. Thirdly, many people claim to have seen the risen Lord from the dead and fully believed it to be true. Even dying for that cause, even dying, going to their death, claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. And again, it's not just one or two people that were looking for it. It was even men like the Apostle Paul who were adamantly opposed to it. And these are not easy things to just try to explain away, even for the scoffer. The Bible teaches Jesus was truly, bodily, physically risen from the dead. We have Paul here writing maybe some 20 or 25 years after this resurrection, claiming again and proclaiming to these Corinthians that Jesus had truly indeed risen from the dead. And there's well over 500 other people who would testify to the exact same thing, who saw it. In fact, Paul stakes the entirety of the truthfulness of Christianity upon this claim that Jesus is risen from the dead. So the first truth is that it happened. The resurrection of Christ happened. The second, Christ's resurrection is essential to the Christian faith. Again, some people in Corinth were denying the resurrection from the dead. And Paul lets us know it not only happened and occurred, as if he's just correcting some facts, but that it's essential to the Christian faith. So in verses 1 to 4, again, Paul reminds us of the gospel. Verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That is the good news in a nutshell. And just as important as the events of Good Friday in which Jesus satisfied the wrath of God by dying on the cross for sinners, 
are the events that occurred a couple of days later on the third day as Jesus rose from the dead, as the tomb was found to be empty. In verse 14, Paul says this, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. It's empty. We are even found, he says, to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul says that if Christ stayed dead, there is no gospel. There is no good news. He says, in fact, I'm a liar, as are all the other apostles, because we're all testifying to the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. There is no forgiveness of sins. You are still in your sins and your faith is futile if Christ has not been raised from the dead. Sinners, of course, are those who die and stay dead. If Christ is going to substitute himself in for the place of sinners, he cannot be sinful. If he does not rise from the dead, there is certainly on what, no evidence, no proof to us that he really did satisfy the wrath of God. If Jesus comes to be the seed of the woman to correct and fix the curse that has come into the world on account of Adam's sin, which brings death, then he cannot stay dead. The curse of sin is not undone if Jesus dies and just stays dead, buried in the tomb. If he doesn't rise, we have no evidence, no proof that his sacrifice was acceptable to the Father, just one man's claims. For all we know, he would be a liar. And according to Paul's claim, we would still be in our sins and all of this would be for nothing. Moreover, the necessity of the resurrection, as we've said, is found in the fact that the Old Testament demands it. It testifies to the necessity of Christ rising from the dead. We see that in places like Psalm 16 that we read earlier. You will not let your Holy One see decay. As Peter is telling us, this is a prophecy about the Messiah, the Holy One, who though he would die and bear the sins of many, he would yet not see decay. He would rise from the dead. There are other texts like that speak of his reigning forever. It's necessary. He must rise. But we also find it in the whole thrust, the whole logic of redemption from the fall into sin and its curse, which is what brings death. Again, if that is what is to be overcome, if there is to be any real redemption from the curse, then death cannot have the last and final word. If, if bodies just die and everyone just stays dead, then really death has still won. Even if, even if one wanted to say that, well, the spirit lives on afterwards, okay. But when God created the world, he did not create man as simply a spiritual being, but as spirit and body, a a material and immaterial part. And the whole reason there's death in the first place is because of sin. So if that is to be overcome, if that is to be conquered, if the curse is to be rolled back, if you will, then death cannot have the final word. There has to be a resurrection from the dead. 
And so if the Savior who came to accomplish that work dies but just remains dead, then he has not accomplished that work. It just cannot be. Death would still, in fact, be reigning. So the resurrection is essential for a number of reasons. Or preaching is vanity. Faith is vanity. And Paul and the apostles are liars because they claim to have seen the risen Lord from the dead. The third resurrection truth, Christ's resurrection ensures that all of his followers will also rise with imperishable bodies. Christ's resurrection ensures that all of his followers will rise with imperishable bodies. The two resurrections, the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of his people, are inextricably linked. They're they're linked together. As one goes, so goes the other. Verse 12 Paul says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, generally speaking, then not even Christ has been raised. Again, because Christ is raised, he's saying it means we too will all be raised. In verse 20, Paul says that Christ is the first fruits. He's the first fruits, that is, So the first fruits would be the first fruit from the vine, for example, that would be tested. And that would tell you what the rest of the crop is going to be like. So you have a grape crop. What's it going to be like? You test it with the first fruits. And that tells you what the rest of it is going to be like. Christ is the first fruits from the dead. He has been raised and his resurrection tells us it is an indicator of what it will be like for all of those who will likewise be raised from the dead. That's what he means by this word first fruits. This is what will happen one day to dead believers. We will be resurrected with imperishable bodies. He goes on in verses 35 and following to talk about how our physical bodies, now they are, are perishable. They will die, we will die, but we will be raised imperishable. We will be raised immortal. We will be raised, he says, in glory. Obviously, our bodies now that we have are decaying slowly but surely due to sin. They cannot, as he says here, inherit the kingdom of God. He says that in verse 50. And so something has to give. There needs to be a change, and indeed there will be. And this will occur at the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the final resurrection of the dead. Christ's resurrection means that we too, those who are trusting in Christ, will be raised with perfect, imperishable, glorious bodies. If you remember from Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes tells us that God has put eternity on the hearts of man. Last summer, we were going through that book. God has put eternity on the hearts of man. There is a sense that there ought to be something more, that death is not right That there's a sense of vanity, if we're being honest, and if people around us are being honest, there's a tremendous sense of vanity and emptiness and sadness that one just dies. Even after living a long life or a great life, one might say, and just then just gone and then forgotten. Of course, this is vanity. This is a true sense that God has placed in the heart of man because it is wrong. In a sense, it's not natural. We'll get to that more in a moment, but death is an enemy, and there will indeed be a resurrection from the dead. The fourth resurrection truth 
Christ's resurrection ensures the death of death. It ensures the death of death. In verses 24 and 25, Paul says that in the end, Christ will set everything in the world right and all of his enemies will be put under his feet. Then in verse 26, he says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's an enemy. Again, it's not natural. People speak of death as if it's just a natural part of life, this natural circle of life, however people want to talk about it. Sometimes we can even fall into that. Well, it's just natural. It's not natural. We should not think of it that way. It is not part of God's good creation. It's an intrusion. Paul calls it here an enemy. It's it's natural in the sense that it, it happens to everybody. It's going to happen. But it is not natural in that it's not part of God's good creation. It is an enemy. Of ours, And it is the last enemy that will be destroyed by Christ. If you jump ahead to verse 54, he picks up again on this idea of defeating death, destroying it, saying that when the dead in Christ are raised imperishable, when that final resurrection occurs, the dead in Christ are given immortal bodies, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Again, death is an enemy. We, we cannot escape it in this life. We might cheat death once or twice, but eventually it will catch up to us. However, Christ has indeed conquered death by rising from the dead. Death could not hold him down. Death could not defeat him. He beat death in his rising. And as such, when we are raised with him, death will no longer have any grip on us. He will no longer have any sting. It is the last enemy that will be defeated finally and forever. Those who are in Christ will be imperishable. Death is really the ultimate, the ultimate in human suffering. It is the ultimate in terms of our our enemies. We suffer much in this world for all kinds of different reasons we might look at. But ultimately, the ultimate suffering is death. And yet the Bible is telling us, Paul is revealing to us, that one day death itself will be no more. It will be destroyed. All of its sting will be done away with. Fifth resurrection truth. Christ's resurrection ensures complete deliverance from sin. It ensures complete deliverance from sin for his people. So right after taunting death in verse 55, Paul declares in verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. So obviously in our present reality and the way the world operates and works now as we find it, death is a very mighty foe. It comes for everybody. But if it weren't for sin, then death would have, would really be no threat to us, right? We would have no reason to fear death if there was no sin. But since all of us have been born with a sinful nature and have committed sin throughout our days, death has indeed stung us through sin. Death is, is like a, a bee or perhaps a scorpion. If, the, if that bee or stor- scorpion has no stinger, then it's not really much of a threat to you. It's not really able to do anything to you. And so when sin is done away with, death is no longer much of a threat. The stinger of it is gone. But indeed, it does presently have a stinger because sin presently still exists. 
But on that day, we have this taunt here because death will be overcome. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. What Paul's getting at with this statement that the power of sin is the law is that the law of God demands perfection of us. But of course, we have not kept God's law. Indeed, we've transgressed God's law. That's the very definition of what sin is, transgression of God's commands, God's law. And so it is, God's justice demands death for sinners, and God's law is there condemning us. If we were to stand before the judgment of God, we would be condemned. And so this empowers death, if you will, or empowers sin. It it keeps us enslaved. God's law condemns us. It imprisons everything under sin, Paul says in Galatians. This is a wretched condition for sinners. There's nothing we can do about this. We are entered into this world as sons and daughters of Adam, spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. It is why we have this great enemy of death. And some, even now and and even here, might still be in this condition, in this state of sinless or of sinfulness, of, of not just sinfulness, but of being dead in your trespasses and sins. The law of God is what reveals this condition to you and actually keeps you there. It demands perfection. It, reve- it reveals to us God's standard is absolute righteousness. And every time you break God's law, every time you sin by your lusting, your stealing, your lying, your hatred of other people, your deception, putting other things before God Almighty. The law is right there leaving you condemned before God Almighty. The law reveals our spiritual deadness and leaves us all guilty and cursed before God. It is the power of sin. And yet, of course, there is redemption in Christ. There is gracious forgiveness. This is the good news. This is the good news we have. This is the good news that Paul is seeking to proclaim and and remind us of in this chapter that he's seeking to uphold and affirm and confirm in the Corinthians and in you and I. Christ has died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and he was indeed raised on the third day. If we ask ourselves again and remind ourselves, why is this necessary? Again, because your sins demand justice. This is the only way for God to be able to forgive a sinner and remain just. His law, which is, is, is a, uh, reveals his righteousness, really just reflects his holiness and righteousness. His law demands penalty. It demands payment for those sins committed. The penalty, the wages of sin is death. And of course, it is not just the physical death that we can see around us when it occurs, but this is followed by judgment from God. It is appointed to man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Revelation talks about hell being the second death. It is just and it is necessary for our holy God to so punish sinners. This is the extent of his holiness. We find that it's offensive to us to think that God would treat sinners in such a way, but this is because of how, that really reveals just how sinful we are and how low of a view of God we have 
and how we don't think that our sins are really such a big deal, that God surely wouldn't really care about these little things, that God, you know, he's got so many other things he might care about. Surely this is not one of them. God can't really be that great that my little sin is such a big deal. But of course, this is not what the Bible teaches at all. And of course, there's no way for you and me to work our way out of this problem. There's no way for you and I to get around this, for we have sinned. Even if we could now live forever until the day that we die, or sorry, even if we could live perfect from now until the day that we die, even so, we would have all of our past sins and transgressions. And what do we do with those? What is the judge of all the earth, the judge of the universe, going to do with those sins? He cannot and does not and will not simply sweep sin under the rug or just wink and turn a blind eye to it. This is not God. This is not justice. This is not what he does. And so there's really just the one way to have this dealt with. If there was any other way, God would have done it rather than for the father to send his beloved son to come as a man, to become flesh, the eternal son, taking a human form, obeying the father's will in everything, and then offering himself as a blemish-free, spotless lamb to substitute in for sinners, to have the sins of mankind laid upon himself, laying down his life for his sheep. Romans 4.25, Paul says that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses. Delivered up by whom? Ultimately by God. This is God's plan. He was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. Having completely satisfied God's justice in his offering of himself, Christ has risen from the dead with death no longer having the victory. He is the first fruits of what will come to pass for all who are in him. And of course, this gospel is not just a rigid matter of uh, a legal transaction. It is that. Most certainly it is that. This is not something that God just does in some grudging manner. Rather, we are told that this is the, the, the great expression of God's love for sinners. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we cleaned ourselves up, after he looked ahead and said, you know, that guy, he's going to really try his best and, 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 and clean himself up. And so maybe I'll give him some help. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is, this is the, the great demonstration of God's love. In love to the world, God sent his son. What love for the father to do this. To send the Son to die for wicked sinners. Elsewhere, Scripture tells us, you know, rarely will a man die for another man. Maybe for a good man, we might. Right? That's, that's also in Romans 5 when he talks about God's demonstration of his love for us. We might die for a, a person that we look out and see as a decent person. You know, maybe I'll sacrifice myself for that guy. He's a decent guy. Maybe he'll, he'll do something good. We might give ourselves in that situation. But for some scoundrel, who deserves nothing but death, who deserves nothing but judgment, we're probably less likely to say, yeah, I'll take his place, to give ourselves for him. And yet this is what Christ has done for us. And in love for us, the Son has come, and we're told he joyfully went to the cross as well. 
Again, we think that we, we think of God and, and we think of maybe of, of Christ as just sort of that disappointing, disappointed, disapproving father shaking his head. Just again, you can, you know, I'll, I guess I'll help you this time. But Hebrews tells us it was for the joy that was set before him that Christ endured the cross. He despised the shame of it, it says, but he did it for the joy that was set before him. God did not have to do this, but he willingly, out of his own free, gracious beneficence, has made salvation possible, has, has earned salvation, has made it so for his elect. When Paul declares Christ's victory over death, it is a proclamation of Christ's victory over the very power of sin itself. We wrestle with sin every day, every day, constantly. But one day, it will be overcome. We will experience that. Christ's death and resurrection assures this. Death's sting is... Sin and the power of sin is the law, verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God is severe in his justice, but in him there is mercy. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There is atonement. There is forgiveness. There is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist declared Jesus to be. There is grace, and this comes through faith in Christ. There is victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. And God calls all men and women everywhere to repent of your sin, to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, to seek refuge in him in this way. God does not and will not despise a contrite heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit. God does not turn away the empty-handed and lowly sinner who just beats their breast and appeals to God for mercy. And so come to him in your bankruptcy. Come to him and find mercy, pardon, eternal life, eternal rest. And if that is your hope, then hear again the mercy of your, of, of your God toward you. Be reminded of what Christ has accomplished for you, of what awaits you yet, the resurrection from the dead with imperishable bodies. Let that encourage you in the midst of your exhaustion and tiredness and your frustrating battles with your sin. One day this will be over. Even as we face death, We face it now, but one day it will be gone forever. The sting of death will be no more. As we come to verse 58 then, Paul gives a couple of just brief inferences from all that he has just laid out. In light of this resurrection of Christ, in light of our own future resurrection, therefore... Verse 58, therefore, my beloved, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 
So let's just break that down a little bit. He says to be steadfast and immovable. In light of Christ's resurrection and all that he has accomplished for you, be steadfast and immovable. Be firm. Do not be moved on from the faith. Continue trusting in the Lord. Be confident. Be unwavering in this reality. Even amidst all of life's unknowns, even amidst amidst all of the opposition you're presently facing or you might face or you will face one day, Christ has risen. You likewise will be raised. You are headed toward an eternal victory if you're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Death will not have the final say. That's even something now we can face with some measure of courage. Be confident in Christ. Remain steadfast in him. Fix your eyes on eternity. On Christ, the resurrection from the dead. Like Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, we are journeying toward the celestial city. We keep our eyes upon that prize. Fix your eyes on Christ and what he has accomplished for you and remain there daily. Be steadfast, immovable. Secondly, he goes on and tells us to always abound in the work of the Lord. To be overflowing in the business and enjoyment of the Lord. I understand the work of the Lord to be referring to all good works that are in keeping with sound doctrine. Stated elsewhere, it's living worthy of the gospel, worthy of the Lord as citizens of his kingdom, pursuing concerns related to his kingdom, living in light of who we are in Christ. Certainly, this would include things like preaching and teaching in the home and in the church, the the entire worship of the church as we gather and take the Lord's Supper together and baptism and, 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 and sit under the means of God's grace. Evangelism, reading and meditating upon scripture, laboring in prayer, stewarding our resources well for the sake of the kingdom, giving, showing hospitality, etc. Exercising your gifts to build up one another in the church, showing mercy as you have opportunity, speaking the truth in love, seeking to fulfill your vocation, your, your job in a way that honors God, rather than being people pleasers in that. Paul is urging you to immerse yourself in these things, to be abounding in the work of the Lord in light of what Christ has accomplished for you and in light of where all of this is headed. If you're weary again from this work, take courage in this. Consider again eternity. Remember Christ has saved you. Remember his promise to protect you, to keep you, to present you blameless at his coming. The promise of being raised with an imperishable body. Every difficulty you endure now, all of the work in the Lord you you labor toward now is not in vain, Paul says. It's not empty. That brings us to the next point. Abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That idea of labor, that word labor, it's the idea of beating, a beating. Intense labor, trouble, toil, difficulty. Despite laboring in the Lord, despite the fact that it is difficult, it is not in vain because of how this all ends, because of eternity. This is the whole point. 
This verse is in contrast to what we read back in verses 14 to 19, where Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, then all of this, his preaching, your faith, everything, is in vain. That's the negative way of putting it. However, because Christ is raised and because believers will also be raised with him eternally, this isn't in vain. None of this is empty. What is more worthy of our time and effort than laboring in the work of the Lord? Ask yourself, consider, on the final day, on the resurrection, the day of the resurrection, what's going to matter at that point? It's useful to think about that sometimes, to sometimes snap us out of maybe just inward focus or worries that maybe we ought not to have or priorities that are misplaced. Moreover, none of this will be in vain because our labor in the Lord will be remembered by God. And in an extraordinary act of his grace, though our best works now are still tainted with our sins, they will nevertheless be rewarded by God. We are storing up treasures in heaven, amazingly. Hours spent in prayer, that fight to try to focus, any persecution that you are made to endure, all the time spent waging war against your fleshly desires, struggling to overcome your fears so that you might stand in faith, not moved, or overcome your fears that you might share Christ with another person, evangelize. Any insults, the trials you face, forsaking self to serve others, to build others up, your efforts to raise your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord and to discipline them, instruct them in the things of the Lord, to teach them the ways of Christ. None of this is in vain, though it is toil often, though it may be wearisome, though we may wake up and and want out, want an easier way. Rather, in light of the resurrection, we're to abound in this kind of work, knowing that it is not in vain. These things are of eternal significance. And so let's seek to mortify any complaining about these things, simply because it's hard. When we consider that eternity, the resurrection awaits us, and we will be with our God forever. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. In 2 Corinthians 4, Verse 16, Paul says this. He says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. The outer self still wasting away. Paul's feeling the effects of sin. But inwardly, he's being renewed each day. For this light, momentary affliction. Now, when he says that, it's not that he's saying it's actually... It's not that if we had a scale of affliction and like this is a really hard affliction and this is really light. He's not saying I'm actually just undergoing something very, very light. He's he's saying that even the types of afflictions Paul has experienced, and we know the kinds of afflictions Paul had, being stoned and, and, and suffering virtually everywhere he went, multiple shipwrecks, arrests, and so on. We've just come through Philippians. We've talked about this. He's calling those things light and momentary. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory 
beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're passing, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We cannot yet see glory. We cannot yet see our eternal inheritance with our physical eyes. But we are urged over and over again to behold it with eyes of faith. To see with eyes of faith the glory that is beyond comparison that awaits. And and it is this way for a reason. We can't see it with our own eyes. It's not a scientific formula. You just punch in and we can prove it to everybody. We behold it with eyes of faith and we are left trusting that God Almighty will keep his word to his people. That Christ has indeed accomplished enough to bring us safely through to that day. That though we die, we can go to that even with some measure of triumph because we know that Christ Jesus will yet raise us. That this death we undergo is not the end. We labor in light of the glory to come that is beyond all comparison. Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. This, I I preached this text, uh, kind of a quick run through of 1 Corinthians 15, about 11, it was either 11 or 12 years ago at Easter. And as I was looking through those notes this week, it occurred to me that a number of, some of you would have been there, but it occurred to me that a number of people who would have heard that have since died. Both young people and old, actually. Just, just 11 years ago, 12 years ago. Others that would have been there have wandered from the faith. They have not remained steadfast, immovable. They've wandered on. And just as I was thinking about that, it was just a reminder that what we're talking about as we think about the gospel, as we think about... Resurrection Sunday and these kinds of holidays that sometimes people can you know, be flippant about, is, this is, is not something to approach lightly. I, I, I trust we all, we all understand this. This is not flippant. This is not a, a sentimental thing that we're doing when we gather here. And so I would plead all, with all of us, with all of you, young and old, to give serious thought to these matters. None of us are untouchable. We, we don't know how much time we have. Those 11 years, they went fast. Here we are. And some have moved on. Some have died. Do not delay. Do not justify your sins. Do not blame others for whatever it is that you might do. Come clean before God. Confess your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. See the love of God in sending his son. Rest your hope in what he has accomplished. And as you do that, let us hold fast, be immovable in this hope, not growing weary as we fight the good fight. Again, where else are we to go? As difficult as days might be, and even as difficult as things might become in future years, where are we going? To whom shall we turn? Peter says this. When Jesus asks him if he wants to leave, the end of John 6, 
Peter's response, to whom, sh- to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus is risen. There is forgiveness. Death's days are indeed numbered, and eternity awaits. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us. We thank you that you've revealed yourself in your word as the God who is faithful. When you speak, you keep your promise. It is impossible for you to lie. We see that even when you've delayed in the Old Testament, for example, even when your promise seemed so long in coming, yet you kept your word. And as we look out and as others mock and as others say, where is this promise of his coming? Father, we trust that you will yet keep your word because this is what you do. This is who you are. You can't lie about these things. Father, convince us of this. Help us to know this to be certain and true. I pray that we would be encouraged by these things, that we would live in light of eternal life, the resurrection that is to come, that we would, every person here would grab hold of that by faith in Christ, that we would put no confidence in the flesh, that we would rest all of our hopes in what Christ has accomplished and know that it is enough. Father, we are so horribly weak and frail and fearful, and sinful. We need you at every moment. Father, if it weren't for you and your promises to keep us, we would surely abandon. So Father, in light of all you've promised, strengthen us to be immovable, to stand fast, to abound in the work of the Lord. May we know that none of that will be in vain. Father, we look forward to the day of Christ's coming. Father, I pray that many more would yet come to believe. We know that there's, there's work to be done because Christ hasn't come yet. There are still more for whom Christ has died who need to hear this good news and turn to you. Father, I pray that many of those would, would be among us in this very city and all around in this province and in this country. Father, we pray you'd be pleased to pour out your spirit for your own namesake. God, strengthen us as we go from here. Help us to go out in joy. In Jesus' name, amen.